Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast reminding you that Banana Republic is not just a shitty clothing store for Chad to get his chinos at, but a goddamn massacre. Today we have Laura, Cullen, oh, and Ambria. And like we got four out of five of the coven here, which I feel like hasn't happened in a long time. So like I just yeah. wanted to have a little check in. First of all, Lindsay, we miss you. We love you. Kisses, yeah. etc. <laughs> Kisses. Prayers. Prayers. Yes. Reading cards. So I thought maybe we could just like be like, hey, this is how we're doing. This is what's going on in my life right now. All right. Hope, do you want to start? Sure. I'm doing great. It's hot as shit in Chicago today, um, but otherwise things are good. We are getting ready to move to Milwaukee, which is super exciting. So Yay! anybody who's part of Milwaukee yeah. DSA, <laughs> hater, anybody who's involved in Milwaukee DSA, shoot me a line and maybe we can meet up and we can figure out what's going on there uh, organizing wise. And for social things. <laughs> yeah, also that. Kellen, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing so well. Thank you for asking. We recently took uh, one of my cats to the, well, we took both of them to the vet and we found out that my one cat is extremely obese. Um, oh. Apparently. You couldn't tell? No, I mean, we knew he was hefty. <laughs> we love him. Um, <laughs> but there's a, like a scale for cats from like one being extremely underweight to 10 being hyper obese and the vet told us momo was an eight to a nine <sighs> um Aww. yeah so we're putting him on a diet oh man yeah that's the Where's big for momo i'm sorry the big momo. News here. he actually really likes his diet because he's getting a lot of like wet food because apparently cats aren't supposed to eat carbs which is what a lot of dry food is so we have momo on a no carb diet now and his brother Gerald is just along for the ride. He is not obese, as it turns out. Just I one just, obese cat. Are you trying to work with Gerald to make sure there's no cat body shaming happening? We could be doing a better joke, honest, or better job, honestly. <laughs> uh, better job. Yeah, if I had to self-crit a little bit, I would say that we could be doing um, a better job on that front on preventing body shaming within our household. So I thank you for that suggestion. Hope, um, Ambria, what are you up to? Um, well, first of all, hashtag save Momo. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm really upset that Momo's on a diet now. Uh, yeah. Like hope said, it's a hot one, like seven inches from the midday sun. Uh, I turned off my fan and closed the window for art for this podcast I go back to school tomorrow I'm doing a summer quarter in my grad program which is you know I'm becoming a teacher and everything woohoo uh I recently changed from grade school to being a uh junior high social studies slash history teacher so I think Kellen you'll be happy to hear that yes hey yeah, I think that's about it. I mean, I think we can all rejoice in knowing that that's going to be better than math. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would have had to do math in grade school. So 
it, it'll be it'll be good to just do this kind of like one thing that I'm already pretty interested in. Yeah. Yay! Um, how are you, Laura? Wow. You know, I'm fine. I'm okay. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, my. No, I'm that means she's not real. Everything's fine, everyone. Uh, Boyfriends of the world, listen up. <laughs> That's what it sounds like when she's not fine. <laughs> uh, Buffalo is also a sweltering mess right now. I think it hit like 98 degrees today. Shout out boy band of the 90s. Um Nick Lachey, what, what? Hey, Nick. Uh, Nick, if you're listening, this is not an endorsement. Okay, so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, I'm doing well. I started a new job back in April, March. I don't know. But it's pretty good. It's chill. But I have four new staff, four AmeriCorps folks that are going to be with me the whole summer that are starting tomorrow morning and I'm like hmm interesting that I have to be in charge of four people now (laughs) not ready but it's going to be fine everything's fine you're going to be great you're going to be great totally great I wish you were my boss (laughs) it's going to be super fine I'm going to be like how can we um, take advantage of the AmeriCorps system because AmeriCorps is super fucked up and underpays yeah. you. So, like, let's do a lot of fun things during your training. Laura is my boss. Oh, uh, shit. <laughs> Getting light. Aww. Emotionally, spiritually. You know what? Socialistly. The feeling is mutual, y'all. I feel like... What a cool fucking thing. I work with five socialist women in my day job, and then I work with four other socialist women in my night job. Night <laughs> job. Hashtag blessed. Hashtag blessed with my socialist women. I'm thick with socialist women right now. Okay. Mm, <laughs> yes. My thick socialist gaggle of wives. It's so real. It's so real. Are we ready to turn this episode, get turned on this episode? Oh, Lord. Yes. Okay. So today we're talking about Banana Republics. What's that, you ask? Why are we talking about an upscale women's clothing store or men's? I'm not sure. I don't really know what it is on Season of the Bitch. Well, ho, 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 dear listener, we aren't. We are talking about the historical term that speaks to U.S. imperialism as it relates to food. I'm going to pass it off here to our resident historian who can intro this even further. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm only the resident historian for a little longer. As soon as Ambria starts teaching history, we're just gonna, we're going to have a, a whole whole host of historians. <laughs> um, but host I'm going to historian hosts. Okay, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I'm going to hold on to that title for just a a few minutes longer uh, and jump into this here. So this is an interesting story for a lot of reasons, um, the story of Banana Republics, because it's basically the story of how U.S. corporations took over, like literally like took over large swaths of territory in Latin America 
And it's really illustrative of a bunch of different things. How global capitalism functions, how state actors are critically important for propping up quote-unquote free markets, how colonial expansion adapted in the 20th century, and honestly, like just a ton of other stuff. Totally. I think that this is also when we really see in the global sphere, we see U.S. hegemony concretize Mm. in a really severe way, which obviously has massive ramifications. Yeah, for sure. So the story of Banana Republics starts with railroads, which were sort of like the 19th century version of major tech companies today. Oh, yeah. My history playing Monopoly definitely helps me understand this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes. Thank you, Monopoly. Um, (laughs) It also is helpful to get around New York and understand whether you are in a rich or a poor part of the city. Oh, shit. Um, Not anymore so much, but this used to be true. Anyway, as I was saying, so along with like corollary industries like steel and oil, railroads made a small number of men exceedingly rich, creating like the most significant wealth disparities the nation had ever seen. This is, again, like the mid to late 19th century. So one of these railroad guys is a guy named Henry Meigs. And I hate on Season of the Bitch to talk about men, but unfortunately, that's what we're about to do. It's never good, really, when we start talking about men. (sighs) So Henry Meigs, he fled the United States in the 1850s after committing massive fraud and just like dropping all of his debts and moved to South America, sort of outside the realm of the United States government's control. In South America, he started building some of the first major railroad lines on the continent, which opened uh, remote areas to capital and also extended his personal region to other industries like mining, farming, and construction. So by the time this dude died in the 1870s, he was essentially running Peru, like running the actual country because no his, his commercial interests allowed him to wield such massive power over the nation, this nation that had like a pretty weak central government, um, which I think is a, a fun, fun little cautionary tale about why companies should never be this large. He also kind of like moved into Central America as well. Another government, Costa Rica's government, gave him exclusive access to build a massive railroad system through their country. Oh Henry died, womp womp. His nephew, Minor Cooper Keith, what a name, took over their business because then as now, nepotism is the surest way to protect the class interests of your family. This is where the story gets really interesting or like at least more relevant to this episode. So we've talked about Meigs, this like runaway guy who like fucked over a bunch of people in the United States, fled to what was already kind of becoming the global South and then proceeded to like fuck over a bunch more people then handed that business to his nephew. So Keith gets involved and I keep saying Keith and thinking it's his first name, but it's not. It's the only normal name that he has. Keith really overextended himself with the whole railroad thing in Costa Rica that his uncle started. The costs of building it were enormous, and he had no idea how to account for tropical diseases and his labor practices. This isn't funny. I shouldn't be laughing. Something like 4,000 people died building, like, the first 25 miles of this railroad. I should note, just to be fair, that 
I think all of Keith's brothers were actually among the like malarial casualties. So it wasn't just Costa Rican laborers or even the replacement that the company brought in from across the global south from like Jamaica to China. Uh, But it was also, you know, a few rich white dudes trying to make money off of those people. So anyway, after construction was done on this Costa Rican railroad, there were not nearly enough people riding Keith's trains to pay off the massive debts he had accrued building the damn thing. And note here, too, that the railroad obviously should be a public good is essentially his, like his personal railroad spanning like all of Costa Rica. Um, He expected not just to make money off of building it, but off of running it, too. So when that didn't totally work out, he started thinking he's been growing bananas to feed his workers. It's like a cheap, cheap supply of food for laborers. And he thought he might make some coins selling bananas to the United States. Like I said, they're cheap to grow. And this dude needed to make money however he could, because apparently he was not interested in running away from his debts like his uncle had. So. In the, in the 1880s and the 1890s, this guy Keith grew his banana business and in 1899 merged it with the largest banana producing company in the West Indies to form United Fruit, which now had 80% of the banana market in the United States cornered. Much more important, at least for our purposes, was the company's control over Latin American infrastructure. Yeah, the literal stated goal of combining forces in the creation of the United Fruit Company was to make the cheapest banana possible to sell to the United States. And all of that requires total integration of farming, infrastructure, transportation, and then selling the goods in the United States. So let's look at Guatemala to start. Guatemala was part of a group of colonies that jointly declared their independence from Spain in the 1820s. And it wasn't until 1847 that the nation separated as its own independent state. So after a series of different governments, the country underwent a quote unquote liberal revolution, which in effect meant an opening to trade, increased industrialization, and then of course, more wealth funneled to the land-owning and frequently Spanish-descended class than the poor indigenous population. This is probably a familiar story to a lot of people. One of the ways these liberal leaders sought to, quote-unquote, modernize was to invite foreign investment into the country, remembering now that foreign investment frequently means not just that a banana company starts selling the fruits that you grow, but that they build up a whole transportation infrastructure around those, those crops. So this is how UFC got a deal to build some railroads. Oh, uh, and also run literally half of the railroad track in the country. And then also somehow run the postal service in Guatemala, literally running the postal service. So this foray into media distribution helped prompt the the company to start the Tropical Radio and Telegraph Company, which then quickly rose to dominate those industries in the region, So by like 1920, United Fruit is the single largest employer in Central and South America. And we could go into like the details in literally like every country in the region. Mm. We're just we're just focusing on Guatemala for a hot second. So white while elites in the region generally encouraged these developments, you know, the UFC made sure they were profiting, too. They were frequently met with massive resistance from the poor and uh, the laboring class. So. Think talking about Guatemala again, one small early strike in Guatemala ended with the country's leader authorizing the nighttime assassination of many of the strikers within company barracks by national troops, um, which I guess is just, you know, 
happens when you upset the corporation that runs your country's entire infrastructure. Uh, yeah, but anyway, the story gets even more interesting, or, or I don't know if interesting is the right word, but we definitely want to delve into what happens in the 1920s and 1930s, which is like more intense strikes, specifically 1928, the Colombian strike, and the 1934 Costa Rican strike. And I know Laura definitely wants to talk a little bit more about those and what happened as a result. Do I ever? <laughs> um, so I wanted to start, first of all, by just saying that the United Fruit Company is now called Chiquita. Um, so this company still exists, just under a different name. So I want to ask you if we should be avoiding Chiquita products, or is that just too hard to do? And it's kind of basically pointless. I always wonder when I hear history like this, like how we as consumers, what we should do about it once we know about it like should we be getting fair trade bananas should we not eat bananas at all also i found the statistic which exploded my brain a little bit 96 percent of americans eat bananas and the average american eats 26 pounds of bananas every year which is twice the amount of any other fruit so obviously oh this this is like a it sounds like oh it's just bananas but actually represents like a huge market share of the fruit people are buying and eating it's so mm. fucking nuts and I think that question is hard to answer because it's like, OK, yes, there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. But also, if you have the, if you have the means, I would say buy local. At, I would bleh, I would say to buy as local as you can. Um, and if that means you're not eating bananas, I think that's OK. I think that a lot of these issues stem from the globalized nature of these systems where the profit margins start so low at the bottom, exploiting workers in the environment at mm. every single turn and leaving a fat profit for folks at the top to continue cranking out the U.S. empire machine. And so, sorry, everyone, I honestly feel that if you can't eat bananas, that's fucking fine. Like, there's apples and strawberries if you're in the Northeast, and they're fucking delicious. <laughs> uh. I'm curious. I know this is a big question, but, like, what what was the transition between what the United Fruit Company was and what it is now? It was, like, I know we're talking about all the violence that happened at that time, but, like, what happened to that company is there like a short version of that or is that too big of a question? So I think that to understand what happens to the UFC, how it becomes Chiquita as we know it today, it would probably be helpful to start with the strikes. Totally. Yes. And sort of jump into that. Yes. All okay. right. We'll put my question on the back burner. Yeah. But I think getting there is a, it's important. Yeah. <laughs> so, Okay. We're going to talk about what has been dubbed the, quote, banana massacre. And this occurred in 1928. So among locals in Central America, the UFC was known as El Pulpo or the octopus because it had so many hands in so many places all throughout the region. So because UFC had a complete monopoly over the railway system, no one else could move fruit across the land. No other companies or people had access to this. Everything had to run through UFC. The company also controlled shipping and all major ports in the region. Cheap land and cheap labor were really easy to come by with the company because a lot of the profits of the company was going directly into pr propping up 
corrupt dictatorial regimes, which allowed this company to keep doing what it was doing. The UFC also controlled the messaging that was coming out of radio. So Kellen mentioned earlier that they controlled the radio systems. So they put up all these radio towers and would say things like bananas are the life of the democracy and a bunch of other bullshit. So tons of wealthy people started investing in the companies and the U.S. government decides that what is good for UFC is good for the United States. And some people started going as far as describing the U.S. government as a time at the time as a puppet for the United Fruit Company, which it's like it's interesting because it's technically a U.S. company that then is not only controlling the entire region, but also going back into the United States and controlling a lot of the legislation, particularly as the way that the U.S. government relates to Latin American company countries. Um, so it's like influencing a lot of legislation at the time as well. So the company had its hands in every single piece of their laborers' lives. It's really similar to what we see with migrant farmers in the U.S. today. So the company controlled where they lived, their wages, their access to food, their access to information, etc. So as repressed workers tend to do, they decided to strike. This group of workers in Colombia wanted to be paid actual money instead of company mm -mm. script. Wow. What a concept. <laughs> Shocking. Yes. They wanted a six-day work week and an eight-hour work day, which, like, let's take a minute to give a shout-out to the labor movement for the amount of work we are working now. They tried to write up a contract that was similar to the working conditions in the United States, and these workers were immediately labeled communists and radicals by the Colombian government, the U.S. Embassy, and the UFC. So before I get into the horrors of this strike, I just want to reiterate that no matter how you label yourself as a leftist, whether you're an anarchist, socialist, communist, or whatever you label yourself as, I think there's a really powerful lineage of why we can be proud of these labels. Capitalism mm. has been failing workers and everyone since its inception. And we've been labeled these things because we've resisted the system, because we've recognized that shit is fucked up and we want to stand for something bigger. I like to remind myself of this when my mom get freaks out when I'm wearing a communism pin or something. Um, but capitalism has killed and continues to kill countless amounts of people and continues to kill the planet, which we'll get into more later. And even if we sometimes disagree about how we want to be labeled, I love the solidarity among leftists when we are just like railing against this fucked up system. Yes, there's so much power in just being an out leftist, socialist, communist, etc. And I personally want to live in a world where people think twice about proudly calling themselves a capitalist. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay, so back to this horrible shit. Um, so on December 6th, 1928, during this strike, a UFC train pulls into the main area where people were striking. And when the doors open, there's all these men with machine guns. And they killed over a thousand people, including infants and children, for protesting their working conditions. The entire massacre was done with the full support of the U.S. State Department. Like, there's literally a fucking record of the message from the U.S. Embassy in Colombia stating that they are, quote, thrilled to report that over a thousand strikers were massacred. So it's super fucked up, like beyond fucked up. 
And the reality is that this shit has happened all across different food industries outside of bananas throughout Latin America and the rest of the world. Um, The U.S. has its paws on the coffee industry, the soybean industry, the sugar industry. And we're going to get into a lot more of those. (laughs) We're going to we're going to get into a lot more of these examples um, and some modern day issues related to food in U.S. empire after this quick little music break. Yeah. One, two, ready, go. Ain't that the worst feeling? Cop behind me and I ain't even speeding. Hadn't had a drink since last evening. I was real fucked up. On Robitussin, Robotrippin, Truckers, Speed, Poppy Seeds, Yellow Jackets, Mad Dogs, Cocaine, Listerine, Puppets, Whippers, Alcohol. So welcome back. Before the break, you may remember Ambria asking, so what happened to UFC that turned it into Chiquita? And like, yeah, what what happened? I don't know. We're going to talk about it a little bit. It's like a very convoluted road because sort of as Laura suggested, this thing was like an octopus that was all over everywhere. Um, But the way that it sort of, you know, like shook down, I think is really a story about the success of labor frequently against all odds. So, you know, Laura talked to us about what happened with the banana massacre, about literally thousands of people being murdered sort of as governments are working at the behest of this company. And that's like pretty tall odds to to fight against. But 
There's also sort of at the same time as we move into the 1930s and the 1940s, the global depression takes place. There's corporations are sort of at the lowest point they've been in terms of their power internationally since the 19th century. And what we have is, you know, increased labor protections, both in the United States and also in places like Latin America. So you have a lot of countries like Costa Rica that begin to codify labor protections um, into law during that time period. And as this is happening, strikers continue. So there's um, a pretty important strike that happens in Guatemala in the 1950s. There's several other smaller ones that are going on pretty much like continuously throughout the 40s and the 50s. And something that's happening sort of as all of this is going on, obviously, is the rise of, or I guess I should say, the increased popularity of communism in the region. So in the 1950s, obviously, you have Fidel Castro coming to power in Cuba, and that is sort of um, a watershed moment for the region. You've got people like Che who are running around doing their thing. Other place, other nations in the region are going through revolutions or attempted revolutions. And then you also have massive support from the USSR being funneled into leftist groups in the area. So as this is all happening, the United States is doing what the United States does best, which is resist all of those kinds of things. You have a lot of sort of proxy wars essentially breaking out in various guerrilla combat zones throughout Central and South America. And a lot of that has to do with the United States, one, propping up interests like the what becomes the Chiquita Banana Company, and also just doing whatever it can to undermine um, the politics of the Soviet Union. So this is this is like this is all kind of happening over the course of like the mid 20th century. And the short story is that labor gets more powerful in Latin America. Governments become more much more friendly to the interests of workers and the United Fruit Company loses uh, some of the power that it had as these countries are getting, you know, they don't have to rely on the UFC for infrastructure improvements if they get funding from the USSR. So all of this is sort of happening to relieve the pressure on uh, Latin American nations to depend on, you know, the United Fruit Company or whatever. But there's still a lot of a lot of stuff happening. There's something that was called the Banana War that happened in the 70s as the Honduran government actually like appropriated huge swaths of the land that the UFC had taken over literally almost a century prior. The government nationalized that. So you've got nationalization that's also undermining the power of the company. All of this is happening as the company kind of decides to rebrand from United Fruit Company to United Brands and then in the 80s to Chiquita. Yeah, so to piggyback kind of on what Kellen was saying, UFC was bought by Eli Black in 1968, and because of a lot of the challenges, she was laying out how um, it was losing ground places, there were a lot more challenges than he expected, and the company basically just didn't have as much cash as he thought, so he basically like ran it into the ground and ended up taking his own life in 1975. So after he died, it was acquired by American Financial Group and then was renamed Chiquita Brands International. And then in 2007, which is just slightly over a decade ago, Chiquita pleaded guilty in U.S. federal court to aiding and abetting a terrorist organization in Colombia. Um, in addition to monetary payments, they were accused of smuggling weapons, 3,000 AK-47s, no big deal, 
and helping uh, helping drug smuggling in Europe. Um, and they actually admitted that they paid these um, the organizations, acronym is AUC, they paid these AUC operatives to silence union organizers and intimidate farmers into selling only to them. Hooked. Um, something yeah. that this is really making me think about is like, this is such an enormous story and it's still only one tiny, tiny, tiny sliver of an example of all the ways that the United States has like fucked with and impacted and induced violence in Central and South America. And it's just something that I'm thinking about. I have been thinking about for a while, but I'm thinking about even more with everything going on with immigration right now. Just like when we think about the reasons why these countries are experiencing so much turmoil and violence, like United States imperialism, both like from private business and like from the side of military, et cetera. It's just enormous. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like literally U.S. actions led people to be pushed out of their own countries and seeking asylum here. Mm-hmm. And then we which, punish them for it. We welcome them. Us personally, obviously. <laughs> But we can't, yeah, our personal feelings can't guarantee anybody's safety right now, though. Um, Really fucking sucks. (sighs) All right. So for part of the second half, I wanted to dive in a little bit to the relationship between environmental degradation, human exploitation, and the capitalist globalized food system. So this guy named Tom Rogers has this book called The Deepest Wounds, A Labor and Environmental History of Sugar in Northeast Brazil. It's super accessible and informative on this topic, and I highly recommend it. So Rogers takes the reader through the agro history of Northeast Brazil's sugar plantations. With laborers and the environment as the central narrative of this landscape, Rogers notes that the stories of workers and the environment can be told together. Indeed, it is one story. And I really want to hammer that home because we like to talk about labor a lot on Season of the Bitch, which makes sense because labor analysis is fucking crucial for understanding the exploitation under capitalism. But I really want us to think about the degradation to the environment as being completely linked to the exploitation of labor. Yes. Like, particularly when we think about food or producing any sort of products Um, for the tech industry. um, No, because even the tech industry, we're mining shit. So, like, literally pretty much every single. Everything. Just everything. Like, maybe not being a teacher. Thank you, Ambria. You're doing it. (laughs) Um, But. You're welcome. (laughs) So, for some history on this issue in Brazil. As sugar became an Importing global export, the Portuguese, a.k.a. the colonizer of Brazil, ramped up their use of chattel slaves for labor. In fact, over a period of 150 years, Brazil imported four to 5,000 slaves per year, the majority of which ended up on sugar plantations. Yeah, interestingly, Brazil and Cuba, which were the last two countries in the Western Hemisphere to get rid of African slavery, were places that a lot of American slaveholders fled to when it became clear the institution was over in the U.S. South. So we're talking about like super reactionary places uh, in the 19th century. The the white people. Yes. uh, Not. Yeah. Please continue. So the Portuguese initially used a barter system with the native population for labor, but the high demand for sugar products and competition with Caribbean islands pushed the Portuguese to switch to a system of chattel slavery. 
Yeah. And I, I would also add that Europeans often found it more difficult to rely on native populations for labor than to import labor, both because of the population decimation that came along with European diseases and also because of the inherent isolation that came along with the transatlantic slave trade. We think like from a Marxist perspective, how important it is to alienate labor. You know, it is much easier to control workers who had been essentially kidnapped and then sent across the sea and then put on plantations with people from different tribes who spoke totally different languages than to control workers who knew nearby terrain and had kid networks in the area and actually had somewhere to run away to. Mm. And a lot of plantation owners, both in slavery and afterwards, actually made the calculation that it was cheaper to import workers and literally work them to death than to produce massive amounts of sugar or other crops and than it was to spend the money and lower production to protect laborers' health. And this is true both in slavery, as Brazil was importing, like Laura suggested, literally thousands and thousands of people into the country every year. It was true after slavery, where in sugar planting areas throughout the Western Hemisphere, planters tried to bring in what they called coolies from China, laborers from India, trying to re-establish a sort of bound foreign labor system. And I should also add that sugar is one of the most labor-intensive, difficult, and dangerous, actually, crops to harvest literally in the world. So yeah. this is this is not a fun farming situation we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And the, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm thinking in my head, like, how this could be a fun farming thing. And I just, but I hear you. Yes, it's not, it's really bad. <laughs> Yeah. So when slavery finally did become outlawed, which it was a long fucking time later, politicians... 1888 in Brazil, I believe. Yeah. Fucking Mm -hmm. nuts. Politicians considered the transition from slave to free labor to be the, quote, problem of the epoch. To remain economically viable, legislators created new laws which indebted laborers to the land. Rogers writes, it was no accident that the land law transformed land into a commodity at precisely the same moment that the ability to buy humans from overseas as commodities was made illegal. So that shift allowed the state to maintain impunity in regards towards international laws while continuing its exploitative labor practices under a new guise. So... Slavery is illegal. Farm owners were able to continue their labor abuses through tenantry. The transition represented by abolition was illusory, simply a change to the new system on the same terms. So in this arrangement, planters could demand obligatory work from their tenants or threaten to evict them from the land. Yeah, this was a popular sort of transition method across the Western Hemisphere. Um, We've talked about sharecropping and debt peonage on this show before. Slaveholders in the U.S. South fought a civil war to maintain their labor system, but the transition away from slavery in Brazil actually was much more peaceful, definitely not without resistance from some some slaveholders, but much more peaceful because they had seen what had happened in the United States. Um, And it's a lot easier to move away from a labor system like slavery If you know you're going to be able to maintain your class position and your absolute control over your laborers through a system like sharecropping. And that's absolutely what happened in sugar producing areas, just as it was in the cotton producing areas of the South. And even before that, in a lot of places in the North, in the United States, when they abolished slavery there as well. Yes. 
so yeah, so that's, I mean, it's just, it's just another way to keep cutting costs and, you know, maintain a rapid rate of production. Yeah, totally. And another way that planters tried to cut costs was by continuously shifting how laborers were paid. So it started as a daily rate, but then planters switched to a task system where laborers could only receive payment after an extreme amount of work. And as Kellen said, this was really, really, really intense work. And Rogers writes, a task was not expected to be completed in one day and therefore was a means of delaying worker pay, which was withheld until completion of the full assignment. So this shift in the consistency and the amount that workers were paid continued to chip away at laborers' rights in the sugarcane region. So this massive exploitation is related to the environment in several ways. Um, the landscape was only worth something if it could be commoditized. Over 80% of the original forest was destroyed during this span of two centuries. And I'm sure most people listening to our show have a decent understanding of what deforestation does to climate change, but I'm just going to break it down for folks for a quick second here. Do it. (laughs) So CO2, aka carbon dioxide, is one of the few greenhouse gases that we've become concerned about. We breathe it out. We breathe in oxygen. Pretty simple stuff. So plants have the opposite reaction. They take in carbon dioxide and water and sunshine and churn out oxygen and glucose. So forests act as something called carbon sinks. Did I say that right? Forests act as something (laughs) called carbon sinks because they take in large amounts of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and churn out oxygen. Now, when a tree is cut down, not only is the oxygen no longer being pumped into the atmosphere, but the carbon that was within the tree gets released back into the environment. So not only is there less carbon being taken out of the air, there's more carbon than there would be than there would have been before. So when we're talking about 80 percent of the entire northeast region of Brazil, which is a massive freaking country. When those forests were clear-cut for sugarcane, that's a massive environmental issue right there. Not to mention all the air pollution, water pollution, increased runoff, soil degradation that goes along with that as well. The tenant laborers were also originally allotted a small garden plot, which provided them a sustenance. But because the globalized pressure for more sugarcane increased, laborers lost their garden plots and many went hungry. It was the combined pressure of the loss of land, food scarcity, and disintegration of labor rights that pushed workers to eventually go on strike. Um, Those strikes were only mildly successful, but um, as we creep into the 20th century, it got slightly better. But obviously, sugar industry is in the United States is one of the most ridiculous ones that we have. Um, They have some of the strongest lobbies in the country. They use really manipulative advertising. Um, I know Hope had mentioned in one of our previous episodes that it's like they that industry was in in charge of the entire narrative surrounding in the early 2000s. People being like fats are what are bad for us. And let's focus on that and like saturated and unsaturated fats. That was all like within the narrative of this sugar industry. So our reliance on sugarcane regions has not decreased over time. And we still are like one of the massive contributors to deforestation in the region and obviously labor exploitation in the region as well. Also, sugar is in pretty much everything that comes pre-packaged. 
Mm. So like we did whole 30 earlier this year, which is where you cut out like pretty much everything and having to cut out sugar and read all the labels, you realize how little you can eat. And there's just sugar and like absurd things that you wouldn't even think are sweet. Yeah. It's crazy. We're crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> so um, I thought for our little closing piece here, we could talk about a couple of current examples or at least one current example and I wanted to talk about shrimp for a minute because we've been talking about plants and I wanted to talk about a different type of food, you know. Um, so in Bangladesh, there are recruiters that come to people's homes in small villages to recruit young people, often children, to work on shrimp farms. The recruiters often bait the family by offering 2,000 taka, which is fucking 29 U.S. dollars. And promising more later. In these rural villages, families are often desperate to get some more money. So they agree and give their children into these fucking awful situations. And I'm definitely not blaming the parents here. I'm just blaming the whole system. So there are literally thousands of children enslaved on Dublar Char, which is an island in the... It is a Bangladeshi island. Um, So... and. And there are also children enslaved throughout other islands in the entire Bay of Bengal. So 50 years ago, the area was protected as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And there was this massive great mangrove forest, which was the largest carbon sink in the entirety of Southeast Asia. So going back to that carbon sink thing. So all of that changed when seafood went global. The swamp region, which housed the mangroves, was deemed, quote, worthless and was converted into a monoculture shrimp farming operation. So not all seafood is touched by slavery, but across the region, children are enslaved to catch, clean, pack, and sometimes dry fish and shrimp. Americans import about 2.4 billion pounds of seafood a year, which makes up about 85% of the seafood Americans eat. Also... The U.S. imports way more shrimp than any other country. Americans fucking love shrimp. And almost half of the U.S. <laughs> seafood imports are shrimp. So crazy. Half of U.S. seafood imports are shrimp. So 90 fucking percent of all of the shrimp that the U.S. gets comes from Southeast Asia. So this means we have a real fucking choice when it comes to our consumption of these products. Our consumption does actually affect the lives of these people who are enslaved and in these shrimp farms across Bangladesh. And not to mention the entire carbon sink that is being chipped away at to continuously feed our shrimp habits. Uh, again, will your own habits change things? Probably not. But maybe start with yourself and have a bunch of conversations with people. I think we have to at least try to not have complete blinders on when it comes to this shit. Yeah, I would say focus on progress and not perfection. Anything Mm. you can do to educate yourself about what role you're playing in the global food system. And then beyond that, anything you can do to make improvements is helpful. But I just want to acknowledge that it can seem really overwhelming when you start learning about how fucked up all of this is. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And also, like, totally, I think it's good for us to educate ourselves and learn about, like, what brands to avoid and learn really, like deeply the reasons why it's good to shop local if you can but also like we recognize that you can't always do that Mm -hmm. because it's more expensive etc but if you can you should 
I also want to recommend this movie called Harvest of Empire. It's a documentary about immigration from Central and South America and sort of like it highlights several major countries that have Latinx immigrants that come to the United States and how the United States played a role in the situation that led to that in each of those countries. It's really good. I recommend it. Bring tissues. Uh, But it's really important stuff to learn. Thank you. That's our show. <laughs> we did logging it. off to cry. <laughs> I I feel like we frequently do a good job of being like, let's end it on an uplifting note. And this week we're like, so your shrimp is harvested by children who are enslaved. Goodbye. <laughs> um, we're, we're like laughing, but it's not obviously not funny at all. Um, sorry to everybody that we didn't do that this time. Uh, if you're driving somewhere and hey, Colin, getting hit with this one. Yeah. No, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, sorry. So, you know, yeah, what? all right. The world's not sorry up. if we Merry Christmas. Listen, yeah. knowledge is power. People knowledge is power. <laughs> uh, power is power. But yeah, point taken. <laughs> okay all right this is just spiraling i'm just kidding also i'm hot so i sound terse it's <laughs> at least you don't sound like a turf am i right oh, oh. hopefully fuck never turf. fuck turfs okay yeah Who uh wants to close yeah us out here so everybody knows we don't like turfs uh yeah we don't like them yeah don't like the turfs <laughs> if you're listening and you're a turf we don't support you. Stop being one. You know what you, you, anybody who's listening can do, though, is uh, check us out on <laughs> Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Find us at Season of the Bee. We are accessible at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. Send us your music. Send us your uh, questions. Let us know what you think. Um, if you like us, you should rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. It actually, like, definitely means a lot for us and for finding new listeners and all of that kind of stuff. Obviously, we'd love it if you'd throw us some money on uh, Patreon. We release our episodes early. It's a great way to give back if you feel like we're giving you a little something, something we have a live show coming up this Ooh. weekend. This weekend. This summer. <laughs> not this weekend. I, I wish. Uh, this <laughs> summer. It is August 11th uh, in New York City at Star Bar. Again, more details forthcoming, how you can get your tickets. But we'd love to see you. And um, we may be doing a, little, a couple other little fun events that weekend. So just, you know, keep your calendars open. Um, yeah. Keep your hearts open, keep your minds open, keep your calendars open. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And I know it's hot as hell pretty much everywhere in the United States right now, but uh, sweatshirts are still on sale. (laughs) It'll be cold again one day, I promise. Someday. You're never going to find a sweatshirt this cool for this cheap, so you might as well get it now. Tuck it away in your little closet. (laughs) Or your big closet, or your medium-sized closet, or in that... That broken ass Tupperware thing under your bed. Oh, I know what you're oh, talking about. Got one of those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The lid sweat. never goes on quite right. It's you know, I tape years. it shut. Yeah. <laughs> Wish I were kidding. <laughs> <laughs>
You always try to peek it up and then the lid pops off and you drop it and it spills everywhere and yep. you're like, God damn it. Yes, exactly. Okay, I love you all. Yeah. I love you love all. You. I love, love you. you all. Love you. Love you. Love you. Love you. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Bitch.